0: from and sort of what happened along the, the way uh, that led to all of the different uh, groups of churches and sects and different um, um, denominations that we have till today have today so okay you can't see anything all right so basically let's start with the very beginning um, what's the birthday of the church who knows what the birthday of the church is huh other than mark malik because no one heard him the birthday of the church when we sing happy birthday candles cake it's the pentecost so the pentecost is sort of when the church began let's see if there's anyone i can tell to sherry could you just make just hit people okay um that's recorded um so the Pentecost is the birthday of the church, right? And we all know the story of the Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles, and the apostles um, start speaking in different languages. I, I just, I'm so easily distracted. It's H- ADHD, I think. Um, and one of the most important, one of the most important features of the, of the Pentecost is basically the fact that they all speak in different languages. And I think this is very important, and I'll tell you why I think it's important, is because when they did speak in different languages, the first thing God did when he established the church was take language off the table. And this is important, right? Because even though language is is what, um, is what characterizes a people, and language is our ident- is an identity of a people, right? So when I go to a different country... And someone's speaking, and then I hear someone speak English. You know, if you've been in Japan for a month, and everyone's speaking Japanese, and then you hear someone speak English, you're like, oh, you're an American. And it feels great. I remember I was even in Australia for a long time, and I heard someone speaking American English. And I said, you're an American. And we just started talking about America. And he's like from Kentucky, but it doesn't matter, right? So what God wanted to do was to take language off the table and say language actually doesn't matter because that isn't your identity now. Your identity is you're my son, and you belong to this group, and your kingdom is not of this world, and it doesn't matter what boundaries or borders you happen to be in, the kingdom is is a different kingdom. And so sometimes we forget this lesson, and we think that the language is somehow connected to God. And in fact, every religion has done this, right? If you go to the 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 Catholic Church, they'll tell you Latin is the language of God, and the Greeks will tell you Greek is the language, and we'll tell you Coptic is the language, and the Muslims will tell you the Arabic is the language, and everyone's got it, and the Jews are, it's Hebrew, and of course the disciples probably had a good argument for Aramaic, and everyone can claim to have the language of God, which just happens to be my language, by the way, and it works out nicely. And so, it's important to note that God is beyond language, and I don't have to worship him in one language, right? And I have to worship him, I, I need to worship him in the language I can understand. So, that's the beginning of the church. And from there, all of the apostles are energized, and they start. And they start spreading the word, and everything is great until when? I don't know if it's on there or not. I can't even read it. I know you can't. So, what happened... In around 67 AD, anyone know? Nero burned down Rome. Why is this significant? Why is this significant? Because once Nero burned down Rome, who did he blame on the fire? Nagy, can you just smack everybody? Just smack. Um, that's also on the recording. Oh, it's not on the recording? Whew, good, I said some bad things. It's a problem. Yo, oh, I'm not going to start over. That's torture. For you guys, for me, oh, it's like sending a message at 2 in the morning. Um, okay, all right. Okay, so hi. I'm Mark. Um, It is recording. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the history of the church. So after the Pentecost, we have the first major incident is Nero burns down Rome in 67 AD. And when he burns down Rome, he blames the Christians. Why is this important? Because once he did that, he started a wave of persecution against the Christians. So from 67 AD, there are 10 emperors, sequential emperors, that one after the next persecuted Christians, right? So all of the martyrs that we have around the church, most of the martyrdom that happened in the church happened in those first few centuries, right? So St. Mina and St. George and Ebu Sifin and St. Demian and all of these martyrs and all half the stories in the cynics are of this emperor that doesn't like Christians, they're all from those first few centuries, okay, when there was a ton of martyrdom. And this characterized the church as one of the strongest times in the church's history, okay, which is really interesting, and it's also very relevant to today. Why is that? Because I want you to think about what I just said. The church was being persecuted, and when I mean persecuted, I don't mean like we're persecuted today, like if I'm at work and I say I'm a Christian and people say, oh, that's gross, okay, that's not persecution, right? Persecution is, you know, you have the full weight of the Roman Empire trying to kill you, And it is punishable by death, right? And the way they used to do it in the early centuries was if they suspected you as a Christian, they'd follow you. And they'd follow you on a Sunday, and they would try to follow to find out where you're praying. Now, does anyone know where Christians prayed in those first few centuries to avoid detection? Huh? Catacombs, right? Underneath the ground. You know what a catacomb is? It's like an underground chamber or a room or a place where you buried people. So all the dead people were there. So they're praying around a bunch of caskets. And that's where they had liturgies because you couldn't hear them up top. So they all would go down to these catacombs where nobody was because nobody hangs out at, around caskets generally. And they would pray liturgies there. And so eventually what the Roman Empire would do is they would try to follow somebody, follow them down to the the casket, right? Then they'd kill everybody. But most importantly, who would would they try to kill? The bishop. Because if you can kill the bishop, you can strike the shepherd, you can kill the community. And so they would try to figure out who the bishop was. Because back then there weren't very many priests. Until later when the church got larger, right? So if you can kill the bishop... You know, So every, almost every bishop that was ordained in those first three centuries, it was kind of a dual ordination. You're going to be ordained bishop and martyr. And that's pretty much how this ends for you. Okay? And so most of the bishops ended up martyred. Right? They would just find them and they'd kill them. Okay? Which is quite different from today. But now, why is this important? Because the church was being persecuted by the full strength of, of soldiers with swords... And the church had never been stronger than that time. All of the martyrs that we have in the church came out of that period. All of the strength that we have of the church came from that period. Okay? In fact, the beginning of the last emperor of the ten emperors that I mentioned, who's the last emperor? Does anyone remember? The worst one. Diocletian. Okay? Diocletian was the tenth and the worst emperor, and he killed more Christians than all of the other nine before him combined. And his reign started in 284 A.D., and that's why the church started our calendar, our Coptic calendar starts in 284 A.D., because we want to start at this guy's, the start of his reign. Because when his reign started, that the church really got strong. And because of that persecution, the purity of the faith was very, very high, and it was very good. Now, I want to go back to what we're just talking about, Is a persecuted church a good church or a bad church? Is it good to have persecution? Should we worry about persecution? Should we go into a country and say, let's change all the laws so that they don't persecute us? We don't want to be persecuted. That's not necessarily our objective. In fact, if you look at the Christian church, we've been persecuted pretty much in 67 AD, and it really hasn't stopped. And whether it's communism or Islam or you name the thing, Christians have been persecuted. And that's kind of good. We'll talk about why that is in a second. So the persecuted church was a very strong church. Until when? Who knows? Constantine, right? So Constantine is the next emperor after Diocletian and he tolerated Christianity. What year? 313 AD. Right? He issued this thing called the Edict of Milan, or the Edict of Tolerance, and he allowed Christianity to be one of the state religions, and he himself, rumor has it, became a Christian. What do you think happened when the emperor becomes Christian? If you have any brains and you want to get ahead in politics and you want to get ahead in the government, what should you become? Christian, right? And so, all of a sudden... Everybody who has any political aspirations or wants to get promoted at work or wants to be popular with the girls, he just converts and becomes Christian. So now the church went from this very small, very tight, very strong, very good, faithful church to this very big, very open, very tons of people flooding in, and the church changed completely. And... Another characteristic of the church is if you showed up at the church and you said, I want to be a Christian, they would baptize you right on the spot, right? Because they, you know that like, it's just like a year or two before you're detected and they're probably going to kill you. And so anyone who wanted to be a Christian, we just let them in. We're like, all right, you're in, no problem. But now everyone and their mother is trying to join the church, and most of them don't really care. They don't care about church or Christianity. Or they just want to be in the right church with the emperor, the governor, or whoever is in power. So floods and tons and tons of people start flooding the church. The churches go from tiny little catacombs to big cathedrals. Right? We move from very, very simple altars to marble altars. We move from very simple wood a patent and a wood chalice to a gold chalice. and Because now the money is flooding into the churches. Right? And one of the things we did is, is the churches start to expand. The bishop's chair, so there's little things that change, right? The first thing is like the bishop's chair used to be behind the altar. Okay? That's where the bishop would give the sermon. He would give the sermon so his words had to, to, had to pass over the altar. But after the churches got too big, you couldn't hear the bishop from back there. So we moved the bishop chair to out here so he can give the sermon out here and you can hear him better. The next thing the church did was to say, you know what, we're just not going to baptize people anymore because there's too many of them and none of them know anything and none of them really care. So we instituted this thing called catechumens and we just made it up. And a catechumen in Arabic is mawazin, right? The people who want to become baptized, who want to learn about the church. And the church instituted this three-year plan and says, before we'll baptize you, you have to go through lectures for three years and then we'll baptize you. Today in the sermon, if some of you guys were here, I mentioned St. Cyril of Jerusalem who used to give a catechumen series, right, until, uh, and he had a, a pre-baptism series and a post-baptism series, okay, and that was part of the, the ways we actually knew about the early church, right, so 313 AD comes along, Christianity tolerated, all of a sudden it starts flooding with people, okay, the church institutes catechumens and says you have to learn, blah, 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 and what night did we baptize people? Easter, good, right, because Easter, uh, Easter, right, is the night of the resurrection, and so on Easter night, the, all the catechumens would come in, they would have to recite the creed to the bishop, okay, and the bishop would give them a little test, and if they passed the test, they could get baptized, and in fact, the Zephyr that we do, this procession that we do on Easter night, what do we hold? More importantly, the candles? What does Abuna sense? An icon of the resurrection. Okay. Now, today in the sermon, for those of you who are here, the baptism is the death with Christ and the resurrection with Christ. So, the newly baptized are what? The resurrected. Okay. They are the living resurrection. And so, in the early church, you didn't sense an icon of the resurrected. You, I, you sensed... The resurrected, right? So in the early church, this procession used to be the people who were baptized. They were the icons of the resurrection, right? In fact, my my son, my second Gregory, my second son, was baptized on the night of the of the of Easter, right? In fact, our pictures are Abunas in his full regalia, and uh, and he's being baptized, and he was in the procession. Right, because that's the traditional way. And I remember Arabuna gave a sermon and talked about that this was actually the traditional way. And when we ran out of people to be baptized, we had to use an icon to replace them. Right? But it used to be people who were being sensed because they were the icon of the resurrection. Okay, so now I baptize all these people in the resurrection. Okay? Um, and this is how we, we bring people into the church. It's now 313 AD. And what happens? Well, the church starts getting big, and the attack on the church used to be from where? For the first 300 years of Christianity. From the outside, from the Roman Empire, people killing you with swords, things like that, right? Well, once Christianity became legal, you can imagine where the attack came from. The inside of the church. And now we start to have the age of heresy, okay, where all of the attacks of Satan, come from the inside. They come from whom? Worse people. Clergy. Right? So they start coming from the bishops and the priests, the patriarchs. These are the heretics of the church. Right? And the attacks of Satan are these ideas that really weaken the faith of the church. So we have the three councils, right, that we uh, adhere to in our, in our Coptic church. Who remembers which ones they are? First one. huh? Nicaea, good. And how many people are at Nicaea? Huh? Three hundred and eighteen. You hear this every Sunday at the liturgy. Every Sunday. Haram aleko. Right. And then what's the next council? Constantinople. Very good. And how many are at Constantinople? You hear it every Sunday. 150 at Constantinople, don't take out your Coptic reader, we're doing this blind. And then the third council is Ephesus, and how many? 200 at Ephesus, right? And now for extra credit, what years were the councils? Nicaea was in 325 AD, good, Constantinople was in 381, very good, not really, and Ephesus was in 431 Okay, so those are the three main councils. The first uh, council, the Council of Nicaea, the most famous council. We have the arch heretic. What's who's the arch heretic? Arius. The only heretic any of us know, right? Arius. He denied the divinity of Christ. And then in the second council, the Council of Constantinople. What was the heresy? Who is the heretic? Macedonius, right? And he denied what? The divinity of the Holy Spirit. Right? So the first council was the Son, that Jesus isn't God. The second council was the Holy Spirit wasn't God. Okay? And then the church went through a process. We debated, we argued, we discussed, we did research, and we figured this all out. And then, then the church left us a roadmap and said, just so that we don't ever have to do this again, the next time someone says, That Jesus is not the Son of God, or is not God, or that the Holy Spirit is not God, they left us a document. Who knows the document? The Creed, right? It's called the Nicene Constantinoplean Creed, as a matter of fact. So the first part of the Creed, we believe in one God, God, the Father Pantocrator, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not creator of one essence with the Father. That's the first part. That's the part about Jesus. We said that in the Council of Nicaea against Arius. And then the second part we added on a few years later. Yes, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. That second part was added in Constantinople. So you take the two parts. We have the first part for the for the for the Son, the second part for the Holy Spirit. Okay, and then the third council comes along, and who's that? Who's the heretic there? Nestorius, and what does Nestorius believe? Huh? Very good, right? So that that uh, that Jesus was born as a man and then became God later. It's a it's a reasonable hypothesis. And when does anyone know when Jesus became God? In his in his uh, heresy, on his baptism at the Epiphany. Okay, and and so so um, so what Nestorius believed was said that Christ was born as a regular guy, and then at the Epiphany he switched and became God. Oh yeah. Okay. Whatever. Right, and so his idea was 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 that there was a difference between Christ's humanity and his divinity. That there was a time when he was human, and then there was a time when he was not human and he was divine. Okay, so then we added another part. Right, remember at the very end in the confession, Abuna says, "Yes, we believe." Um, sorry, uh, I believe that his divinity parted not from his humanity, neither for an instant nor a twinkling of an eye right? Because in the stories his heresy, Jesus sometimes switched, right? He became God, but then when he wept over Lazarus, clearly that's not God, that's just a man who wept. And when he had pain on the cross, that was, you can't crucify God, you had to crucify a man, right? And so he would, he would look at times in the gospel and say, okay, now that's Christ the man, that's Christ the God, that's Christ the man, and he kind of went through and did some of this stuff. And he adopted a term Called the Christokos, right? What do we say in the church about St. Mary? Theotokos, right? What does the word Theotokos mean? More specifically, right? Theo means God. Tokos isn't just mother, bearer of God, birth giver of God, right? In Arabic, it's better, the one who gave birth to God, okay? Now, why, why, do we, why do we pick such a specific word? Because if we just say mother of God, well, is my mom the mother of an Archie? Yes. Did she give birth to an Archie? No. Right? I became an Archie later. Okay? So if uh, Nestorius was around, he would accept the term mother of God. He'd go, yeah, yeah, she's the mother of God. But she wasn't the birth giver of God, but she's the mother of God. You see the difference? So the church became more specific and said, no, no, you're not just the mother of God. She gave birth to God. He was born God. Okay? So that was the third ecumenical council. And what did we add to the, to, the, to the creed at that point? That's right, the introduction of the creed. We magnify you, Mother, the true light. We glorify you, Saint Theotokos. Right? So that intro to the creed then get, get, got added on the third ecumenical council. Does it make sense? Okay, so those are the first three ecumenical councils. And then, uh, in the, we had the, there's a fourth ecumenical council, the Council of Chalcedon. Okay, what year was that one? 451, look at the seminarian. Right, so that means you're very good. Um, huh? Oh, did He's taking away your credit. She didn't, she didn't look. Okay, amen? You looked. That makes you not good. Her good. What is on there anyway? Okay. Let's move on. Alright, so 451 comes along, and this is the first major schism in the church. Okay? It's not on this one because that this morning when I was trying to prepare everything, I couldn't find my thing that I drew, so I found this on the internet. But there was a major there is a major schism in the church, right? This council broke the church and this is very relevant because right now as we speak the the churches are reconciling this situation right so there is actually a very good situa- uh, a possibility that in your lifetime that the Coptic church and some of the Eastern Orthodox churches are going to be reu- re- reunited again in the faith and basically there was uh i don't want to get into the discussion of what happened too much but I'll, I'll give you the highlights um it all comes down to semantics um mostly that we say that the christ is one nature comprised of two natures and they said no, no no he's two natures he's divinity and humanity we say no he's one nature who's comprised of divinity and humanity and then we argued and fight and excommunicated each other. It's much more complicated than that, but that's the basics, okay? And that split the churches. And when it did, right, there were five major C's in the, in the church at the time. They were, you know, a C is like a big group, right? We, you know, sometimes you'll see the, the title of the Pope is the See of Alexandria, okay, S-E-E, not S-E-A. So there were five major C's. Does anyone know what the five major C's of early Christianity were? Huh? Alexandria is good. First one. Antioch. Jerusalem. Rome. Constantinople. All right. Very good. Right. So you have five major seas. Right. And basically it all got split down the middle. Right. So Alexandria and Antioch went one way and we're called the non-Chalcedonian or Oriental Orthodox churches. And then Constantinople and Rome went the other way. And they're called the Chalcedonian Orthodox or the Eastern Orthodox churches. And this is confusing, right? Because we're Oriental Orthodox and they're Eastern Orthodox, even though the word Oriental basically means Eastern, whatever. And then Jerusalem just kind of went split down the middle. Half of the bishops went one way and half of the bishops went another way. So it was a major schism in the church and that was the first like break in the church, right? Everyone excommunicated everyone. Everyone wrote nasty letters, and they moved on. Okay, said stuff about each other's moms. I mean, it's not—it was, it was ugly. It was ugly. So, so anyway, so the the Alexandrian Church, we just kind of progressed along, right? It wasn't much longer after 451 A.D. There were some attempts at reconciliation that were blocked, unfortunately, and then what happened to the Coptic Church, the Alexandrian Church? In the 8th century, 7th century? Islam, right? So here we have Islam comes into Egypt, um, and it turns out the Eastern Orthodox Church was persecuting the Copts so much that we welcomed Islam to protect us from the Eastern Orthodox Church, right? This is one of the reasons why we brought them in, right? Because they promised us protection from the Byzantine Empire, So we brought them in, and then they just basically shut it all down, right? And we all know that the rest of our history is kind of boring because they basically, you know, there's not very much going on there, right? So now what happens on the western side, right? So now I have the Roman Empire, the Roman Sea, Rome and uh, Constantinople. Those are the two seas. Okay, those continue along for another four or five hundred years until until 1054, and then in 1054 those two split. Okay, and the reason the Byzantine, the or Constantinople and Rome split, right? It, it was it was a, a series of events, um, but. Oh, that's what happened. Okay. No, no, it's no. I was just I was getting my dates mixed up. Um, so. Those two split, and some of the things that they split over are actually differences that we have till today, which is the first one was the marriage of priests. So in the Roman tradition, they started not marrying priests. And in the Constantinople tradition, the Byzantine tradition, they continued, as we do, marrying priests. So that was the first thing. And to this day, the Catholic, Catholic priests are not married. The second difference was um, uh, leaven in the Orban, Okay, so as you know, we put leaven in our orban; it's fluffy. Uh, in the Catholic Church, they're wafers. There's no leaven in there. Okay, and so what basically happened there, and, and this is kind of a long, um, uh, uh, long topic, but basically, uh, Catholic scholars started studying when the when the Last Supper was right. And so you remember that the Last Supper, they, they prayed Passover first, and then they had the last supper, well, you know that in Passover, you're not supposed to have any leaven in the house. So they argue that that Passover, that there was no leaven. That means the urban that Jesus used was unleavened. OK, and if you if you look into it, it's kind of it's it's kind of confusing because the gospel of John, the one we rely on, kind of makes it sound like it was after the Passover. And the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke actually make it sound like it wasn't that way. So it's a little confusing. Okay? And our argument is very simple that it's it's kind of tradition. Right. We've been doing this for a thousand years. Someone would have noticed by now that we were doing it wrong. And basically, you know, to come along in the 11th century and say, wait a minute, we've been doing it wrong for 1,100 years, is kind of foolish, right? Uh, so that's one thing. And then there's something called the Filioque, which is simply an addition to the Creed, which is, is, is uh, we'll, we'll, not that important. We'll talk about it. We can talk about it later. Um, so anyway, those things split Constantinople and Rome. And then they went their way. That was 1054. Uh, what then a- ends up happening is um, in in uh, in 1204. Um, I'm trying to remember who sacked Constantinople. In 1204, Constantinople fell, and I'm trying to remember. I think it was I think it was the Turks. The, uh, yeah. The Turks sacked Constantinople in 1204, and then by 1453, um, yes, they fell to the Ottoman Empire. So then, so then Constantinople also became Muslim, right? So just like Constantinople today is, what what city? Istanbul, right? So Constantinople fell, it became Istanbul in 1453, and then ended up becoming um Turks, um, And that's why, you know, you have a, a, a church like Hagia Sophia, that's now a mosque, right? And if you go to Turkey, to, if you go to Istanbul, it's full of churches that all look very Byzantine, okay? But then they all have the two minarets, um, like the two little towers, the Muslim towers. Because all they did is they took all the churches and they made them onto mosques, right? So that's why all, everything, every mosque in, in Istanbul looks like a Byzantine church because it used to be, right? Um, and so that, that kind of happened, but then the Western Church, once, once uh, Rome broke from Constantinople, Rome started to get very, very progressive, right, and start to make a lot of different changes in some of their theology, some of their beliefs, things that we don't really agree with all that much. Like one of the things is the, the Pope of Rome, if he issues a certain kind of decree, can be what's called an infallible decree, decree not he's not infallible, but that the decree becomes infallible. So even if every bishop and every cardinal disagrees with him, that still goes through, right? So that's something that the Orthodox Church doesn't really like. There were some things about the Immaculate Conception of Saint Mary that they didn't like, things about purgatory we don't like. And so there were some additions to theology that happened in the Catholic Church uh, during that period. That's the filio quay So that was back in like the 11... Uh, that was one of the reasons for the earlier. Um, the red shoes. We don't have red shoes. We have black shoes. Black is holy. Um, see? Holy. Um, so anyway, so... Uh, what are you talking about? So the Roman church continues... And I'll, I'll end because I see the kids coming in. The Roman church continues for a little bit. And then what happens is... Um, And and this is also a very important lesson for us. The Roman Church started focusing during the Dark Ages on rituals a lot. So they made two mistakes. The first one was Latin. So the Roman Church insisted on praying in Latin, even though at this point different languages, more modern languages, the Romantic languages, um, had started coming into use in Europe. The church said, no, we're all praying in Latin. And what that did was is it devastated the spiritual life of the church because a lot of people would go into the church and not actually know what was being said by the priest. And then the second issue with the Latin church in that period was politics. They started getting very, very close to the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor. And now the Pope and the Emperor were buddy-buddy. This is always dangerous and I just want to point out these two things because we see them in the Coptic Church. Insisting on a language that people don't understand. And second, politics. It's always dangerous for clergy and politics to mix. We are much better as, as clergy when we are persecuted and in a position of no power. right? Because then we can say with St. Paul, as, as Jesus said to St. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is perfected in weakness. Right? So clergy do really well in weakness. Clergy do very badly when we have power. Especially if the Pope and the Emperor are in cahoots. Right? And it reached a point where when the Emperor, the political head of Rome, was crowned, who did it? The Pope crowned him Emperor. Right? So now think about this as an Emperor. Right. You want people to follow you. Right? In fact, you want to have several crusades where you go and you kill a lot of people to, to, to acquire land. What's the best way to do it? I mean, if you're a smart emperor, what do you say? God wants us to do it. Right? We need to go take that land, not because it's a lot of rich farmland and there's some natural resources, and I want to take these people's land. You say, God wants us to have this land. Let's go fight for God. And then you get the, 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 the pope to go along and say, yeah, yeah, God really wants us to have that land. Let's go get it, boys, right? And that's why the Crusades would start off with a cross, right? I mean, they're going in, a bunch of soldiers going in killing and doing all kinds of really, really horrible things, but it starts with a cross, right? And we unfortunately saw this even in this latest Russian-Ukraine thing, right, where you see the Russian pope kind of going along with, with um, Putin, Putin telling him, yeah, yeah, tell the people, right, that we got to, you know, We've got to get Ukraine because of their position on homosexuality. This is a religious war, okay? So there's danger there, right? And, and sometimes we get real excited when, you know, the mayor comes and comes to our church and we're like, oh, you know, the governor knows Ambassador Opion, and, you know, the mayor of Irvine comes to our... And we get real excited, but we have to be careful, right? There's just politicians, and they roll over, and they're corrupt usually. Okay, that's how they became successful politicians, right? And so it's not something we really get encouraged by, right? We, we're much better when you persecute us, right? That's our, that's our place. That's what we're kind of used to, right? We shouldn't be out looking for power, especially political power, right? That's not where we thrive as a church. So those are the two things that destroyed the spirituality of the, of the Roman church, right? They're praying in Latin. The priests became political figures. It's all about power. And then all of a sudden, someone named Martin Luther comes along and rightfully so says, you know, there's no spirituality here. And he posts his 95 theses on the door of the church. And if you read his 95 theses, he's got a good point in most of them, right? He made some really good points. Yes, the spirituality has been devastated in this church, and you are ritualistic, and you're just following the letter of the law, and there's no love here. Right? In fact, the Catholic Church would even tell people, don't read the Bible. We will read the Bible, and we'll tell you what the Bible says. Don't think for yourself. We will interpret for you because you don't know how to think. Right? It was a control thing. Right? And you know, the bishops were selling plots in heaven, these things called indulgences. It was horrible. Right? If you gave the bishop a bunch of money, he'd say, okay, I'm going to reserve heaven, a, a spot in heaven for you. Right? And we all know that you have, to just get, you have to give money to archdeacons for that. Um, and I'm accepting Teslas um, and stocks that have appreciated in value. Um, and so this kind of corruption in the, in the Catholic Church led to its devastation in its spiritual life. Martin Luther breaks off. And now we have a big issue. And this will be my final issue. Which is once you break off from tradition... Tradition is kind of like an anchor on a boat, right? Yeah, it kind of sucks sometimes, but at least it keeps you in place. And once you cut the chain on the anchor, your boat's all over the place, right? Wherever the wind takes you. So Martin Luther breaks, right? And then John Calvin breaks. Martin Luther starts Lutheranism, the Lutheran church. John Calvin starts the Calvin, Calvinist church right? Zwingli starts another church, and next thing you know, we have church after church after church after church after church, right? And if you start counting the Methodists and the Baptists and the Anglicans and the Episcopalians, right? And then they start subdividing. Next thing you know, you have thousands of different churches, And every single time, someone doesn't like what someone else said. I mean, John Calvin and Martin Luther, very close, they each started their own church, named after them. Dangerous, right? And so even though the tradition was kind of choking, it also kind of kept everybody in place. And so what you find is the church now subdividing, and there are over 5,000 different Protestant sects now, each one believing something different. And if you don't like what someone believes or what that particular church believes, you just start your own, right? And after a while, they just stopped getting named even, right? So, you know, now if you drive around America, you'll find Church of the Foothills, right? And that isn't even part of a particular train of thought. It's Pastor Bob graduated from the seminary in 1956, and he started this church because he believes XYZ. And then I go and I go, hey, I believe XYZ, he believes XYZ, I will join that church because that's the church that follows what I think, right? And again, you see this kind of reversal. So this is the cause of why we have, and then from there, you have groups that break off from there that even the... The Protestant evangelical churches don't consider churches like Seventh-day Adventist, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, and I think the Seventh-day Adventist, all deny the divinity of Christ, as a matter of fact, right? So all the Protestant churches don't even believe them, acknowledge them as churches either. And so now, this is the situation we have today, where you have lots of different sects. The Ori- Oriental Orthodox families, uh, and the Eastern Orthodox families, the Catholic family, and then the Protestant family. Anybody have any questions? Sorry, I know there's a lot of information. I, I agree with you a thousand percent. Um, and, and in fact, oh, okay. Oh, thanks. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll even take it a, a step further, right? So when, when we have a debate about the Trinity, uh, and then we say a bunch of words, and we say the Trinity, there are three persons, but one essence and one this, and we use a couple of Greek words to make it sound better. You know, in the end, we don't really understand the Trinity. Right. In fact, you know, the next step is it's actually dangerous to say, I understand the Trinity, because now you've made something uh, that's a mystery that we clearly don't understand into something that I can that I understand. And now you've made it into an idol. You know, you it's 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 like you made God with a, a hammer and then you worship the God that you made. Right. And the same I'd say with the nature of Christ. I mean, do we understand who Jesus was? Of course not. Right? I mean, I have, I have lots of words I can tell you, but do those words, can the human language even capture who Jesus is or who God is, right? So I agree with you a thousand percent. Of course, God is looking down and saying, why? Why did you guys do all this, right? And, you know, I mean, like, forget, forget, you know, Protestant and Orthodox. I mean, within Orthodox, within Coptic Orthodox, oh, you go to that church, I mean, you know, oh, look at how that priest wears his hat. You know, right at this point, right? But these are the kinds of things that divide us. And there are people who like, oh, no, you know, I mean, I remember uh, Abuna Krillus telling a story once about uh, there's a certain part of the of the of the church, a ritual in the church of how to break the Urbana as Abuna breaks it during the liturgy. There are some people in the Coptic church who think you have to take this piece and put it there. And there's some people it's it's blow versus not blow. And, and, you know, he went to another church, another group uh, from another monastery, and they saw him not blow, and they lost their minds. Like, how could you not blow? And they're like, oh, well, I learned it at M. Oh, M. does it wrong. Those people are crazy heretics. I mean, and you have these people getting really upset. They're both Coptic. They're both priests, right? I mean... You know, you take the world, right, and you're just a a little sliver, and yet I can find a way to divide myself from you because you do this one ritual. You learned it this way. I learned it this way. We love to do this stuff. It's silly. I agree. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. Can you just comment on... uh, the, the terminology of monophysites or monophysicism and h- how I think my understanding is that we're misclassified as that uh, and, um, if, and if it was a simple misclassification of the Oriental Orthodox, how come over 1,500 years How come they, what? How come over 1,500 years they couldn't uh, find a way to resolve this simple So your question is the opposite of his question <laughs> yeah. um, So uh, what, what he's talking about is when we divided with the Eastern Orthodox Church, they said that we're one nature and we said they're two natures. Well, it's, the story obviously is more complicated and I'm kind of glossing over it, um, but when they said that we're one nature, there is a guy named Eutyches, he was a heretic, who believed that Christ was just one nature, but that he was just divinity, okay? And in his words, he said, it's like taking um, his humanity dissolved in his divinity, all right? And he said it's like taking a drop of ink and putting it in the ocean. And that's how dissolved the humanity is in the divinity. So Utiki said that Christ was just God. Okay? And through a series of political events, um, we started, uh, we had some uh, connection with Utikis. In Arabic it's Utahi. And ultimately when we said one nature, the other, the, uh, the Eastern Church said, oh, you say one nature, Utiki says one nature. You're both heretics, okay? Now, so they called us a monophysite, and we, uh, mono means one, and physite means nature. However, in Greek, there is the word mono, the word one, has, there's several different ones, okay? So if I say something is mono, that means it's one, but it's singular one, okay? But if I say I'm mayaphysite, a um, um, maya is also one, but it's a combined one, right? So for those of you who are old enough to remember, if you remember there used to be an East Germany and a West Germany, okay? So there was a mono-East Germany and a mono-West Germany, right? And now there is a Maya Germany combined of the East Germany and the West Germany, okay? So we say that we are a Maya physite, which means we believe in one nature that is combined of the divinity and the humanity, okay? Um, and they said two natures, and again, this gets complicated, because Nestorius also said two natures, right? And if you remember, Nestorius was 431 A.D., this is 451 A.D., a lot, that's only 20 years, and a lot happened in between, and so when they said two natures, we said, oh, you're just Nestorians, and you're dividing the two, divinity and humanity, okay? Um, there are also some complexities with the will of God, one will or two, or the will of Jesus, one will or two wills, um, and so why wait 1500 years? I think a lot of it is um, the division I think at the time was more influenced by politics and that sort of thing, right? People are people, right? Even if they're bishops. Archdeacons don't do these things but the bishops do. Um, And so there's, there's, there's turf wars, there's territory, there's just ego, right? And unfortunately that started the division Right. And even to this day. Right. So when when we get together with these other groups and we debate and we discuss and they say, just okay, let's just leave the history in the past. What do you think? And they say what they think. We say, what do you think? We say what we think. And oh, we say the same thing. Right. That's not the problem. The problem is, what are we going to do about the history? Right. You excommunicated me and I excommunicated you and we said nasty things. Right. So now the problem is, well, are you going to accept Chalcedon? Right? Now, in our Coptic community, if you say the word I accept Chalcedon, there will be someone who will kill you, right? On Facebook, at least. Okay? So there are people who are like, I will die before I accept Chalcedon. Right? Our martyrs, you know, people their teeth were his beard was pulled out and they give you emotional stories that they may not even be true. Um and so there's a lot of a lot of politics there, right? And also if you tell the the monks at Mount Athos that they uh that you want to accept a Ma- a myaphysites us they'll be like they'll they'll rent their garments on the spot they'll say we will never join with the coptic heretics you know so there's just a lot of history and people get very emotional about these things uh and that's causing the problem right is how do we deal in a consistent fashion with with um, these things. And the way that Ambassador Upion and this council has done it recently is they basically say, uh, let's not talk about what was said. Let's talk about what your interpretation of what that council believes, right? And do I accept your interpretation of what the council said, right? So you meet a Greek theologian today and you say, tell me what Chalcedon said. And they say, they said i Z. I'm like, all right, I agree with X, Y, Z. Okay, so I agree with your interpretation or your yeah, interpretation of Chalcedon. And I don't have to agree with Chalcedon, but I can agree with your interpretation of Chalcedon so you and I can take communion, right? So it gets this complicated, you know, these guys sit in rooms and, you know, I'm not, I, I could say something very inappropriate, but Negi started the recording, so. But it would have been funny. I'll, I'll, I'll just let you know that. It was good. I'll tell you later, Sri. Any other questions that are opposite of you know these two questions? And then we can, uh... all right, glory be to God forever, Amen. Thank you guys. Let's uh, pray real quick. Make us worthy to say with all Thanksgiving, our Father who art in heaven, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. It was this day our daily. Bread. Yeah,